to be reading this morning from Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16. And there is a Bible in front of you in the pew racks if you'd like to uh, follow along. And we're going to stand for the reading of God's word. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial." Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open, if you will, to to Matthew 26, and let's pray together and ask God to meet us as we look uh, together at his word. Gracious Father, um, we thank you that we have an incredible privilege of calling you Father and of hearing from you. Lord, we are able to call you Father because of your Son, through our union with him by faith. And we're able to hear from you because you have given us your word. So Lord, would you speak clearly? Would your spirit bring your word to bear on our hearts and our lives this morning? We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. When I first arrived on the pastoral staff at College Church in Wheaton uh, several years ago, I had the privilege of serving uh, under a man named Todd Wilson as my supervising pastor. Uh, Todd was an associate pastor at the church. I had known him uh, when I was there as a student at the college and then an intern at the church earlier. Uh, He's one of those guys who is just ridiculously smart like you you're kind of just jealous being around them because they uh they're just wise uh some of you know john beckman uh who used to attend here todd and john were classmates at uh, bethlehem bible institute in minneapolis and uh todd did a couple of degrees at wheaton then went on to do his phd in new testament at cambridge university in england which if you're in the New Testament studies realm is kind of like an engineer doing their PhD at MIT or or a a business professional doing their 
doctorate in business at Harvard or something like that. It is the most sought-after sought after university in the field of New Testament studies. Uh, so when Todd completed his degree at Cambridge, and one of his fellow scholars asked him what he was going to do next, he told them of his plans to go back to Chicago and be an associate pastor at a church. To which his friend replied something along the lines of, well, that's a waste. I mean, you, you, you have all of this intellect, all of this skill. You have one of the most sought-after degrees. Uh, you, know, you could be a university professor, a seminary professor. You could be known for research and books and all of these things. And you're going to be an associate pastor? I mean, pastoral ministry is what people do when they can't get into Cambridge. That's been said. I'm not making those ideas up. What a waste. What a waste. Or is it? Is it a waste to take the best of who you are and what you have, to take that which is most valuable about you and give it back to the Lord? Is that a waste or is that worship? Especially when you consider what the Lord has given for us, namely everything on the cross. That's the question that this passage invites us to ask as it brings us into the very tense moments leading up to Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospel of Matthew. You'll notice uh, in, our, in our passage that every single vignette in here is marked by the impending death of Christ. He predicts it in verses 1 through 2, that the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The chief priests and elders plot it in verses 3 through 5. The woman with the alabaster jar prepares him for it in verses 6 to 13. And Judas is paid to make it happen in verses 14 to 16. The imminent death of Christ on the cross is the dominant theme of our passage. And it will continue to be the dominant theme of this story up until his crucifixion in chapter 27. And yet we also see in these verses a contrast in how people respond to Jesus as his crucifixion approaches. What different people do with him, the the responses which reflect different values for Christ. Whether he is of no value, like the chief priests and elders who are plotting his death, they see him as a threat, or whether he's of little value, like Judas, who used him as a means of financial gain. Or some value, like like the disciples who followed him, but who saw the woman's sacrifice as a waste. Or whether he is of all value, like the woman who willingly gave gave him her greatest treasure. 
So this morning, as we see Jesus moving closer and closer to the cross, where he's going to willingly give everything for us, the question I want us to ask, what is it we are willing to give him in response? What is it we're willing to give him in response? And the four different reactions to him in this story are going to help us sort through that question. But before we get to those, Matthew first sets the context for Jesus' coming crucifixion in verses 1 through 2, which help us see the significance of what Jesus is about to do. So verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. This is now the fourth time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus has told his disciples that he is about to be killed. Not just by anybody, but through Roman crucifixion. So he's going to be delivered up. That is, the Jews are going to hand him over to the Roman authorities for public execution. It's not just that he's going to be lynched somewhere in a dark alley and taken care of. He's telling them it's going to look like this. He knows it's coming. It's what he came to do. But he gives us a little hint of why he came to do it when he connects his coming crucifixion with the Passover celebration of the Jews. So Passover, many of us are familiar with it in in, in different ways, but Passover was a holiday that the Jews celebrated each year. It was a commemoration of the day when God rescued Israel from Egypt in order to make them his special covenant people and to bring them into the land he had promised to their forefathers. We read about those events in the Old Testament book of Exodus. So think ten plagues, crossing of the Red Sea. Don't think Charlton Heston, that's just distracting. But you know, all of that whole story, that's what the Passover is related to. But the Passover specifically deals with the tenth plague. Among those, the plague of the firstborn. God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and say to him, Israel is my firstborn son. Therefore, let my son go that he may worship me. And if you don't, I will kill your firstborn son. Exodus 4. Pharaoh refused. And so the culmination of all of the signs and wonders that God sent was the plague of the firstborn. He sent his destroying angel to kill all of the firstborn throughout the land. But in order for Israel to be preserved and protected from that plague, they had to sacrifice a lamb without blemish. And they had to take the blood of that lamb and they had to paint it on the outside of their homes, on the doorposts on each side and on the the lintel, the cross piece, Above, So that when God's angel came through, he would see the blood and then pass over that home, which is why it's called Passover. And we'll talk a little bit about that ceremony more next week. But what's interesting about the Passover itself 
is that it wasn't just God saving Israel from Egypt. It was God saving Israel from God. God was judging sin. And Israel was guilty too. And so without a substitute to be offered in the place of the firstborn, and remember that the whole nation is considered by God to be his firstborn, without an offering in place of the firstborn, they too would fall under God's judgment that night. And so they needed a substitute, something that would die in its place so that God's wrath would be born and fall on that lamb that was slain. The Passover lamb is is sacrificed as a substitute to bear God's holy anger against sin so that his children Israel would be spared of his righteous judgment and have relationship with God. The fact that Jesus is about to be crucified during the Passover feast is no mere coincidence. It is no mere accident of history. It is God's plan. It's the fulfillment of what that first Passover and every subsequent feast after that had been pointing to. A true Passover lamb who would take away the sins of the world. And that's who the New Testament tells us Jesus is. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He explicitly calls Jesus that. Or think of 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. It tells us that we were ransomed. We were purchased for God from our futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Passover lamb. And Peter tells us that the blood that Jesus shed was precious. It was precious. That's a a word that we use rather flippantly today. We see a picture of a cat on Facebook and we say, oh, that's precious. Or, or we see our child wearing a new cute outfit from you know, Target or something like that. And, oh, that's so precious. They look precious. Which is fine and true and so on. But the word itself in its fuller sense refers to something that's both rare and valuable. Rare and valuable. So you think of things like silver and gold. Why do those cost so much? They're both rare and valuable. And so we call them precious metals, as opposed to things like copper or iron or something else. But even more rare, more valuable, more precious than silver or gold which are perishable, is the imperishable blood of Christ. In fact, there is nothing more valuable on earth than the blood of Christ. And Jesus gave it all. He poured out his blood as 
the Passover lamb to take away the sins of the world. There's no greater gift he could have given to us than to pour out his precious and perishable blood. He did it not because we deserved it, but because he loves us. He did it because he loves us. He did it so that sinners, so people like me and you, who have in one way or another turned our back on God and and, and sought to live life on our own terms instead of his, so that we sinners who rightly deserve his just judgment would be preserved from that and rescued from that, saved from God, and also for God, so that we could have relationship with him through faith in our substitute, through faith in Jesus. Jesus willingly gave everything for us on the cross. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond to him? And there are four different responses in the next three sections here. And each of them, again, reflects a different value for Christ. So first we see what no value looks like. As the chief priests and the elders conspire to kill Jesus. Verses 3 through 5. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So just as verses 1 through 2 were not the first time that Jesus has predicted his death in Matthew This is not the first time that the religious leaders have planned it. We see it clear back in chapter 12. But they will be successful this time. Not because they're getting smarter, but because God is fulfilling his plan. And they cannot thwart God's plan. There's deep irony in these in this part of the story, one author writes, Though sinful men do their best to thwart the mission of Jesus, they accomplish the very purpose for which he came and thus fulfill God's will. They think they're going to stop him. They're actually being used of God to finish his work. It's a deep irony. It's a very tragic irony. And it makes you wonder, these are the religious leaders. These are the the guys who are supposed to be helping the people of God know God better. Why in the world are they rejecting God's Messiah? Why reject Jesus? Last Sunday after church, Carissa and I took our kids apple picking. It's very challenging to teach a two- and three-year-old which apples to pick and which ones to leave on the tree or on the ground that have already fallen there. You know, if we can only fit so many apples into the bag that we paid for, then I'm going to be very picky about which apples are permitted into that bag. 
because I do not want to spend money on an apple that I'm just going to have to throw away when we get home. Some apples are to be rejected, left on the tree. I do not value that apple enough to spend money on it. Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders because they did not value him enough to take hold of him. It was a value issue. He was not worthy in their eyes. In fact, he was of negative value. He was the one bad apple that would spoil the whole bunch. We've got to get rid of him. And of course, the problem was that they didn't see him for who he truly was, for who he truly is. They saw him as a threat to their power at best and as a fraud or a phony at worst, rather than as the faithful Son of God, the Savior of their very sins. They had no value for Christ, despite the fact that he gave everything for the world. It is tragic, and it is sad. It's a very sad part of the story, and it's a sad part of the story that continues to this day. Every time somebody says no to Christ, they don't see him for who he is, or else they value something more than they value having relationship with the God of the universe. There's nothing more tragic than that. And we pray that God would lift the veil that covers their eyes. And yet there are some who know full well who Jesus is, but instead of worshiping him, try to take advantage of him. And that's what we see in Judas's reaction to Jesus in verses 14 to 16. Now I'm skipping over 6 to 13 for a moment. That's actually the centerpiece of our passage. But that section is bracketed by two very negative examples on either side. The chief priests on one side and Judas on the other. In fact, it's very possible that, that the event recorded in 6 through 13 happened before Passion Week, if we go with John's chronology in the Gospel of John, which means that, that Matthew and Mark have placed it here thematically in order to draw attention to the contrast, the different reactions to Jesus. They want us to see, here's how some people do it, here's how others, but look at the middle. And so we're going to look at the middle, but I want us to see the other side of the contrast first namely Judas. You'll notice in verse 5 that the chief priests and elders had decided not to try and arrest Jesus during the Passover festival. Uh, The reason is because during festivals like Passover, the population of Jerusalem would swell to four, maybe five times its size, which made it kind of ripe for revolution if their little plot goes sideways and the people decide to you know, take Jesus aside. And so, not a good idea. The timing's bad for their little secret plot. But then along comes Judas with an offer that's too good to refuse. Which, again, is pretty ironic. Both Judas and the priests and elders think they're working against God. Both are being used by God to accomplish his plan at just the right time. 
So what is Judas doing and why? The why part of that question has, for some odd reason, uh, been rather debated over the centuries. And not a few people have looked for ways to kind of defend Judas. Uh, One scholar comments, It's amazing how down through the centuries people have tried to explain away Judas's actions as a zealot who wanted Jesus to become active against the Romans, or as a faithful follower who wanted Jesus to become the conquering Messiah rather than the passive suffering servant. The gospel, the quote, gospel of Judas, an early 4th century Gnostic gospel, says that Judas did this act at Jesus' own request, so as to sacrifice Jesus' body and complete his mission which in the Gnostic heresy, the whole goal is to be freed from your body. And so Judas actually becomes, in that arrangement, the hero of the story, the enlightened one, unlike the other fools who didn't know what was going on. But Judas is no hero here. Notice how he's the one who seeks out the religious leaders, not the other way around. It's not like they caught him on the way to market and said, hey, we've got, a, we've got something we want to offer you. He found them. He's the one who says to them, name your price. His offer to deliver Jesus over to them is the exact same word Jesus used to predict his coming death at the beginning of this chapter. The Son of Man is about to be delivered over to crucifixion. He knew what he was handing him over to be done, to do. He's the one explicitly seeking an opportunity to betray him in verse 16. His intentions are not mistaken or noble. They are diabolical. And just plain selfish and greedy. Judas sells his Savior for a price. And not a very good one either. Pastor Doug O'Donnell explains it. You know, amazingly, after Judas had just witnessed this woman waste a year's salary on Jesus, the the section we'll look at in a moment, he accepts about four months' wages for his Lord's life, 30 pieces of silver, the price paid by the owners of an ox that gored a slave to death, Exodus 21. So if your ox gores somebody else's slave, you owe that person 30 pieces of silver. Is Jesus worth no more than a slave to him? He has value, but very little, and really only as a means of financial gain. But no real value, no lasting life-giving value. Judas's God was mammon. Money. He was a servant of Satan, not the Lord, even though Jesus loved him, even though Jesus spent day after day with him for three years. And it makes us ask ourselves, where am I tempted to use Jesus instead of to love Jesus? As much as we can can hate on Judas, 
the same sinful blood runs through our veins. The same proneness to wander as we sing in the hymn. Where am I tempted to exploit Jesus for my own gain and glory rather than laying my life down for his kingdom? We see two other reactions to Jesus in this passage. Two other pictures of value for him in the central story. And the most important one of those is, of course, the woman with the alabaster jar. Look with me at verses 6 through 7. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now, this scene is very different from the one just before it, where the the chief priest and the elders are gathering in the palace of the high priest. Here are Jesus and his few followers in the house of a leper. Simon the leper. We don't know anything else about Simon. It's most likely that he had been cured of his leprosy, maybe by Jesus, because otherwise to be in his presence would make one ceremonial unclean and, and frankly unhealthy. But he never lost the title, apparently. And as they're eating... A woman, we're not told her name in Matthew or Mark, but John does actually tell us who she is. Her name is Mary, the sister of Martha, the brother of Lazarus. She comes and she takes an alabaster flask, which was itself very expensive, made of kind of a a soft stone that looked like marble. It was imported from Egypt. And she broke the top of it off. While Jesus is is reclining at the table, which is kind of hard for us to picture. Now, they didn't pull up a seat to the table. They kind of laid sideways and ate. It's just how they did it. And as he's doing that, she comes up and she pours out on him every drop of this expensive, this very expensive ointment. Mark tells us it's made of pure nard, um, which means nothing to us. Um, but it's a lot more expensive than Chanel Number no. 5. We can put it that way. It, it, it would have been imported from India. And it was worth, Mark tells us, 300 denarii. Roughly a, a year's worth of wages for, a, for the average laborer. So I guess if you had to put a price tag on today's market, I don't know, 30000 something like that. We don't know where she got this, if if they were a wealthy family or if this was the family heirloom. We do know that she took it and poured all of it on Christ's head as he sat there eating his meal. It was a lavish gesture of love. Too lavish in the eyes of the disciples. Verse 8. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now, the disciples no doubt valued Jesus. They have been following him um, and learning from him, ready to serve him. 
to spend something so valuable on a single act of love and worship, that seemed like a waste. I mean, if you want to do something with that, something that valuable, sell it and give it to the poor. Which sounds kind of like a rather pious, you know, reaction. And it was probably a genuine reaction for some, though we know from John 12 that Judas was particularly mad. Because if you sell it to the poor, the money goes into the purse, and he was the keeper of the purse, and he used to help himself to it on occasion. Now, Jesus loves the poor. And Jesus calls his people to love and serve the poor. But he says to his disciples here, No, Mary has it right. What she did was not a waste. It was worship. It was worship. Verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. But you will not always have me. Jesus is not minimizing the value of caring for the poor here. He's magnifying the value of worshiping him. And it's an important difference. I mean, in this story, he's not going to be there much longer. He is about to be handed over, crucified, buried. He will raise, but then he will ascend to heaven. He will not be there much longer for them to kind of express this kind of love and devotion in person in such a generous and sacrificial way. And so in Mary's eyes, Jesus is worth every drop of that perfume. He was all valuable. There was nothing to compare to him, nothing more worthy than to spend all that she had on than this act of worship to him. So beautiful and fitting was that extravagant offering that Jesus tells the disciples in verse 13 that she's going to be remembered for it wherever the gospel of the kingdom is preached. And isn't it interesting that we're remembering her for it today? Even as early as the writing of John's gospel, which is probably written about 60 years after this event, John says in chapter 11, verse 12, when he's talking about Mary, beginning to tell the story of Lazarus, he says, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So already there, she's being remembered for it. And and every time these verses are read, we see this act. We, We remember and honor her memory. If you think about it in contrast to Judas in the next section, it's interesting that to this day, many people, many women are still named Mary. Uh, Not necessarily after this particular Mary, but it is an honorable name. Nobody names their kid Judas. Not unless you hate them. And you can look it up. That name has been blacklisted for the last 2,000 years. Like maybe five people in the United States over the last 10 years have been named Judas. Seriously. 
You don't do it because his honor is gone. And you contrast it with this woman, this woman who gave everything she had and the honor that follows her. But even beyond Mary's extravagant devotion and the, the beautiful picture of love that that is, there's something even more deeper happening. There's a deeper significance to her act, one that she perhaps wasn't even aware of. Verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body... She has done it to prepare me for burial. That's a strange thing to say at a dinner party. But her lavish gesture was also a prophetic sign. His bodies were commonly anointed with spices, uh, basically to cover the smell. Ancient Jews didn't embalm Uh, corpses, and so they piled on the spices. So Jesus is being anointed in advance for what is about to happen to him. He doesn't flee from the fact that he's going to be crucified. He's not caught off guard by the plot of the chief priests or by the payment Judas receives. He embraces it and he prepares for it because it's what he came to do. Which brings us back to where we began. That Jesus is preparing to be crucified. He's preparing to pour out his precious blood for sinners. To to give everything for those who deserve nothing but judgment. To offer forgiveness and reconciliation to God for those who cling to him in faith. He's willingly giving everything for his people. And so, once again, the question, what is it that we will give in response to him? How valuable is he? How worthy is he in our response? The world will tell us, in fact, sometimes our Christian friends will tell us that spending the best of who we are and what we have in devotion to Christ is a waste. That being religious or doing good, you know, that's, that's, that's nice, but it's more of a spare time thing, kind of in the hobby category, um, I mean, Jesus wants you to have a life, right? He wants you to have fun. And so if you, if you get too serious about these things, you're not going to have fun, apparently. It's going to interfere. It's gonna, that, that would be a waste. But is it a waste for someone to turn down a once-in-a-lifetime job offer because of the impact it will have on their marriage and their family and their commitment to Jesus to be a good spouse and a good parent. Is that a waste? Is it a waste when a young woman says no to dating the hottie who's been eyeing her because he doesn't know or love Jesus? Even if it means that she's passing up 
stability, even if it means she might never get married. Is that a waste? Was it a waste for Garrett and Julie Van Wagen and the missionaries on the back of your worship folder this morning? Was it a waste for them to sell their nice home and their car, to quit good jobs and move themselves to one of the poorest countries in the world to care for 17 orphan girls? That's not a move you make to ascend the corporate ladder. Corporate America doesn't have a category for that. Suburbia doesn't have a category for that. Jesus has a category for that. He calls it worship. Was it a waste for Dr. Rick Sacra to spend the best years of his medical career, the best of his medical skills in Liberia? He's an accomplished doctor. I don't know. I didn't realize how accomplished he was on the faculty of UMass Med Center, highly respected among his colleagues. Was it a waste for him to go and risk contracting Ebola and actually contract it? I mean, we praise, praise God for his mercy in, in freeing him from that disease, even as we continue to pray for his health. But would it have been a waste if he didn't come home? If he had died? Lord willing, you'll get to ask him that question yourself in a few weeks. But I can tell you his answer right now. No. It would not have been a waste. It would have been worship. Jesus, who willingly gave everything for us on the cross, is worthy of everything from us in return. It doesn't mean you have to go overseas as a missionary or be in full-time ministry. It does mean that we spend our lives not seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus, but seeking every opportunity to make much of Jesus, even at great cost to self. There's nothing that we have to give that compares to what Jesus has given for us. There's nothing that we have to give that didn't already come from him in the first place. Is it a waste to devote the best of your time, the best of your skills, the best of your money or intellect or experience, the best years of your life to worshiping and serving Christ? Not unless we can say that Jesus wasted his precious blood on us. Let's pray.